kind of stoked. Marco said you may be seated because in the beginning, when I was just uh, just first starting to preach, I never knew quite when you're supposed to walk up because there was this, always this wa- awkward thing, you know, because you want to make a transition smooth, so you want to walk, but then the music would keep going, and I would do a little step back. It all started really when I was playing high school basketball, and the coach and I, we had a game. He called this game the Hezzy. It's where I would sit at the end of the bench because I was a star player, but he didn't see it, and... Um, he would look over at me when someone was in foul trouble. And I would immediately stand up, rip off my pants, and get ready to go. And then he would go, no, no, sit back down. And I would sit back down. I called it the Hezzy. It's a little step in this. So then when I got to college, I was like, most people write how-to speeches on how to open doors. No, no, no. Mine was how to walk backwards out of a room that you're not supposed to be in. So I have perfected it. A lot of it is just the kind of movement of feeling good, seeing it slow down slowly, and you kind of go back just like this. Now, there was one movement that I could never get, the true way to exit a room walking backwards. And for this, I need a volunteer. The way is the moonwalk. And I called on Pastor Mike. He agreed before the service that he would do it. He looked me in the eye, shook my hand, and said, yeah, man, whatever you need. What is it, though? I was like, ah, you know what? I don't even know yet, but something will come. I knew all along. Can you do that moonwalk that you do sometimes when you come down to get the ice? And I'm like, where are you going? And you're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lights. Bring up those lights. We got the spotlight. Wherever you want to do it. I had envisioned it. You're, well, I can't move the baptismal font. Right there it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This way or that way? Well, let's go that way, but don't go too far. Don't go too far? Or we can get okay. a spotter. Right. Yeah. Come on. That has nothing to do with the sermon whatsoever. I just wanted to see if he would do it. I knew he would. I'll see if I can work it in. Then maybe it'll all be worthwhile. Then he'll be like, dude, what was that? But um, let's just walk into our text tonight. Normally I say dive. I said walk right there. No? All right, let's... uh, Let's dive. Our psalm tonight is written by David. And, I, and, I, and as we look at it, and it's in your bulletin right there. You can pull it out. I think it's in your bulletin. Is it in the bulletin? Psalm 131? Nice. Solid. All right. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Or you could be on your Bible. Some people are still reading the Bible on the phone. It's not even a thing anymore. Everyone's just reading it on a real Bible. But um, I want to keep that in the back of your mind. This is a psalm of David. Now, in our upcoming Life Group series, Radical Trust, we're going to learn all about David. We're going to focus on him. We're going to get to know him well. Really, we're going to be focusing on his fearless faith. But for the sake of context tonight or this morning, I think it'll be, um, I think it'll be a good idea just to give a little brief reminder of who David was. Now, you'll remember that he was the youngest son of Jesse, that he was the one whom the prophet Samuel anointed at a very young age, that he would be the next king. He was going to become the slayer of Goliath. David is the one whom God himself said, your descendant will rule on the throne forever. It was written about David that whether he was being praised or slandered, he didn't care because he only sought the approval of God. And he was a man that the king Saul tried to kill several, several times. And so as we look at this psalm tonight, I think we get a really good look at David's heart. And as we look at this psalm, we get to see in verse 1, kind of, that's where he begins. This is where his heart is at. In verse 2, he moves this into a metaphor for where he's at. And then he concludes with this cry for others to join him. See, because what David has in his heart, the hope that he has, it's not enough to experience on his own. But he desires others to join him. It's what John was writing about in that first letter, right? We write this so that our joy may be complete. And when I read this psalm, 
it fires me up. I mean, I want to be able to, to pray and to sing this psalm. I want to be able to live, to, to be this psalm and to join in that, in that celebration, that complete hope and joy that is described in this psalm. Now, this is one of the shortest psalms that there is, but it is also one of the longest to learn. And since we have teachers there, and they can probably testify, there's a couple teachers, Mrs. Bodie, my mom, they were here, they taught me. Um, as one who was always done first with my math quiz, what do you do when you're first? You slam it over on the table to make sure that everyone else in the class knows, smartest guy in the room. Now, I did this every single time without fail. They can attest to it. I'm sure you can ask them after, afterwards. But when I saw that, shortest psalm to read, longest one to, lead, or to learn, I looked at it and I was like, huh, okay. Challenge accepted. I, it's a short psalm. I get it. But I mean, look at it. It's real simple, right? It's be humble, be at peace, hope in the Lord, got it, flipped the Bible over, slammed it down, feeling good, and said, I've learned all of this since I was a young man. It was at that moment that Jesus didn't actually come down to me, but it felt like it. And you remember when the young ruler is looking at him and he says, Lord, I've done all these things since I was a boy. What do I got to do now? And there's that moment in Mark where it says, Jesus looked at him in love and then told him, do this also. It was that moment for me. It was that combined with like an old lady from the South who just looks at you and says, bless your heart. Both of those things working together was what was going on in my mind because I realized that I may know it. I may be able to say, okay, be humble, find peace. You'll have hope in Jesus. But I still had a long way to go till I could learn it so I could learn it in the head, in the heart, in the hands, and in the habits of my life. So we really are going to walk into this text. Oh, for two. Um, I had a pencil up here. Cross out, walk into the text. It's gone. It will not be said again. Now, if you look at the end of verse 2 there, that's where I want to start. As we unpack this psalm, we're going to start in the middle of verse 2. We're going to show that Maria von Trapp was a liar, and for this text, she was wrong. You cannot start in the beginning. You have to start in the middle. At least I think so. So we're going to look at that phrase. See it? It says it right there, weaned child. I took that in my mind, and it's all its neurons firing. That's the right brain word, right? Neurons? Cool, because all I had was the X-Men at the beginning. We're going through. Do you remember that one, the first one? Cool. All right. Neurons are firing. X-Men's going on. And I see this. I see Paul in Ephesians. And I remember what he said about babies. He said, stop being a baby tossed to and fro. I remember he brought it up in Corinthians again when he said, stop thinking like children and act mature. I remember that unknown author from Hebrews and what they said. Why are you still drinking milk? You should be eating solids. Now give yourself seven seconds of a neuron break to try to decide who the author of Hebrews was. Still don't know. Good. You're just like me, except I took a class and paid for it. Now, so I took my biblical knowledge, and I did what you do. I took biblical knowledge over here, and then I connected that with my own life, the life experiences that I had as a child, to grow up into the strapping young man you see before you eating five dozen eggs a day kind of thing, and said, you know what? When I connect that with what it means now to be a father as I'm raising, that was the beauty and the beast. Nobody, man. All right. I'm going to need a lot of pencil marks. Pastor Mike be writing these down. Now, just kidding. He's not writing them down. Now, Gaston, five eggs, before you, all this stuff, right? Being a father, being an actual person, being an employee. And I looked at what that means, to be a weaned child. And I came to a conclusion when I mixed all of it together. 
what it really meant, what I felt that this was actually saying for me. And it was at that moment that I realized my conclusion was focusing very much on myself. And if you find yourself focusing on yourself too much, it's at that moment that you should start that awkward walk back. Because when it comes to God's word, we need to exercise caution so that we don't first bring all of the context of our world and all of our own understanding into it and then say, okay, now how does God's word fit? But rather first we take God's word and we say that this is foundational, this is truth. What does this mean for me in my life and what does this mean for me in the context of where I'm living? Because yeah, this text was written in a specific time, in a specific place, by a specific person. And yes, the word of God is active and living and relevant to me today. But if I don't first start with that it is God's truth, then I miss sometimes what the metaphor means. And that metaphor in verse 2 doesn't necessarily mean that a weaned child needs to work towards becoming independent. See, a weaned child is learning to take the very first steps. They're working towards self-sufficiency, self-discovering self-will, learning to, um, to be self-seeking, if you will, learning to be on their own. And, that, and that's not a bad thing. For those of us who have raised college-age kids, that's not a bad thing. It's a must thing. And it's a continual thing. We're continually learning to be independent. Continually learning to be independent in this world and honing our skills, and our abilities. And so we grow in the areas of sufficiency of will and self. Self-sufficiency, by definition, is satisfying our own needs. It's learning to do things on our own. It's, it's, it's learning that we don't need others to do things for us. It's owning that phrase, I got this. Combine that with self-will, and that's the definition of satisfying our own needs. It's learning to do things on our own. It's saying, this is what I think is best for me. If I want something, I'm going to go out and get it because I make my own bed and I'm going to lie in it. That's self-will. And then self-seeking is simply self above all else. You've got to look out for number one. So you take self-sufficiency, you take self-will, you take self-seeking. And from a young age, what we have learned through time and experience, through watching, is self and we've experienced success with this as well. Yeah, there's been pains and hardships, but there's also been success. And for the Christian, then, the difficulty lies in the fine line of how and why do we learn to be weaned? And who from should we learn to be weaned? Because if we let the world's context define this metaphor for us, we might think that we're supposed to be weaned from God, just like we were weaned from our mothers. And with all those personal pronouns in the psalm, that's an easy way to go. If we pull up verse 1 here, will you do that for us, Dave? We pull up verse 1, and what do we see? My, my, I, myself, me. Always drawn to focusing on self. But we got work to do in this psalm if it's all about us. It means I've got to get my heart right. I've got to get my eyes right. I've got to start thinking right. And I've got to start calming and quieting myself. And I have a lot of work to do. 
That's what happens when I come to this text and look for self. But if I go to verse 3, it says this, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And that makes me stop. Because why would I put my hope in the Lord if I'm the one having to get everything right? But if we read that metaphor in verse 2, in a way of understanding Scripture as a whole, of understanding that the Scriptures themselves testify about Jesus Christ, we're no longer learning to wean ourselves from God, but really we should be learning to wean ourselves from ourself. See, focusing on self-sufficiency, focusing on self-will and being self-seeking never leads to independence. It simply leads to isolation. When all we care about and focus is ourselves, we buy into that way of finding peace and happiness that way. We become the very opposite of alive. We, be, we become like a machine machine who is just programmed to do certain things, charge, unplug, make some updates. No purpose, just self. But the ways of God, the ways of God give life, give true peace, give true joy, and bring about purpose. See, we learn from Him that we are in no way self-sufficient, that we cannot earn self-righteousness, but instead we need to learn to depend on Jesus Christ and be clothed with his righteousness. And where we make mistakes sometimes is we think it's just the forgiveness of sins. That's all I need from Jesus, and then I'm on my own the rest of the way. But nothing could be further from the truth. It's not just forgiveness that he gives us. He gives us his spirit. He gives us gifts. He gives us abilities. He gives us himself. And in Christ, we don't get what is sufficient. Rather, we get abundance. God meets our needs, and that's a good thing. Because God is never stingy. But he holds nothing back and gives the spirit without limit. And rather than making our own beds and becoming wild and unruly like a, like a plant that grows wherever it can and following our own ideas and our own desires, we learn the hard practice of allowing God to prune us, to allow the will of God to be our desire, to let that prayer that we pray, thy will be done, truly manifest itself among us. And so we confess our sins. We ask him to show us the ways that we have failed. We ask him to create new hearts in us, to renew a right spirit within us so that we can adhere to the life that he's given us. And then we don't have to be caught up in that self-seeking rat race. Rather, we can trust that he will provide everything for our earthly needs that we can now freely give instead of grab. We can be generous instead of greedy. And we can let go of holding on so very tight. It's amazing to see how much we can receive with hands open. 
what we see in the heart of this psalm is that God wants the abundant life for us, that God is working and God is present, that God is creating and restoring, that God is blessing and protecting. And when we learn these things, we don't just let them go in one ear and out the other. When we act on them, then we can with all confidence rest, rest quietly in his mercy and trust in his strength. And then we see how that verse one actually works. We see what it means when our hearts are not proud but humble. Because out of our hearts come our words, come our actions. And a humble heart, well, out of a humble heart, we're not so quick to criticize, but we're quick to mend. We speak words of affirmation and kindness to one another. We have a desire to pray with our spouses. That changes us when we pray with our spouses. We have a desire to pray with our children, to pray with our friends, to speak the blessing. And then suddenly we don't question whether or not what we're doing is good or if it's smart. We just simply do it because we can't help but make the choice to do what is right regardless if it is easy or comfortable. And when our eyes aren't hard, even our minds aren't looking to see where others are wrong and we are right. Not constantly competing and contending. Not looking for the bad or thinking the worst. Even in ourself. Rather, we have eyes and a mind that is gentle and soft. Gentle and soft on ourself and gentle and soft on another. We don't concern ourselves with matters or things too wonderful. Remember I said think about David? As a child, as a young man, he was anointed king. God himself said, you will be my king. But he doesn't rally an army. He doesn't try to take the throne. He doesn't try to kill Saul, though he's got a couple of times where he could. And he never gives up hope, but he constantly waits patiently, never manipulating the situation. The one time he did, not a very good story. But you get the idea. Patience. God has a plan for your life. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it's true. God doesn't always give answers for our pain or hardships, but he does promise his presence and his hope, patience and trust. And so somewhere in that awkwardly time of walking backwards or rushing on ahead is the simple walking. The simple walking with God, that's the, the calming and the quieting our minds as we walk with him in the garden, in life now. It's like taking your child to the grocery store, right? You hold their hand. They help you push the cart. They grab a few things. You sit down with them in the backyard and you plant a plant. Play a video game with them or you build something in Legos. It's partaking with God. Him helping us, contributing, all of it working together. That is the life worth living, the heart worth having a life that experiences a relationship with the Father, and experiences hope 
enjoy walking with Christ and walking with one another.